You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good to see you guys. How are you today? Hey, that's right. I did get a haircut. Thank you so much for noticing. I really appreciate that. That's so, so kind. Man, I feel so known and loved right now. That's fantastic. It's really, really good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship, uh, and it's my, honestly, privilege and honor to get to be with you guys as we get to open up God's Word together to be more molded and made into the image of Jesus with one another. Uh, as Brandon mentioned earlier, we are right in the middle of a series that we are calling In Columbia As It Is In Heaven, and basically, here's the gist. We want to see Jesus increasingly establishing his kingdom in our city. That's what we want. That's what we are about as a church, for Jesus to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And the Bible is really, really clear on how Jesus intends to do that, on what his strategy for this whole thing is. And it's very simply his people, his church. And so when it comes to us and our strategy as a church, we want our strategy to be his strategy. So our strategy is you, all right? Uh, And basically, what we are doing with this series is the whole aim for it is to unpack uh, or to basically paint the picture of the type of people that Jesus creates, to unpack for us some of the practices that followers of Jesus engage in as the church together. And our practice for today is the practice of community. Uh, And to be quite honest with you, uh, this has been one of the most formational and foundational practices in the history of our church. Like this has been a huge thing that our church has been about since day one. We've got a lot of experience here, and so we have a lot to say about it, to be quite honest with you. So what we're going to do is we're just going to jump right in this morning. Uh, We're going to head to two texts primarily. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 14. So if you want to go to Mark 3 first, uh, put your finger there, then flip over to Luke 14 and kind of toggle back and forth between both of those. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read them for us, and then we're going to talk about them for a little bit, because these texts are actually going to take some unpacking. And it might not seem that way to you upon first read, but once we get down into the nitty gritty of it, I think you'll see what's actually going on. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. uh, And this is what it reads. And his mother, and that's Jesus's mother, uh, and Jesus's mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So Jesus is teaching in a home, uh, he's teaching his group of disciples, and his mother and his brothers come to call on him. Uh, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now flip over to Luke 14. We'll be in verses 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And welcome to church everyone, right? So in my 12 years or so of ministry experience, I have noticed a trend in myself and in others to do what I would call domesticating the teachings of Jesus. 
What I mean by that is typically when we think about Jesus, we tend to prefer a Jesus who's a little bit more like a golden doodle than an alpha, okay? We like for Jesus to, and his teachings to kind of make us feel comfortable and at home. We like a Jesus who's always happy to see us, who never really says anything that riles us up, but brings us a lot of comfort because he's hypoallergenic, right? We like a Jesus who keeps us comfortable. We don't like a Jesus who says things that rub us the wrong way, that challenge us in ways that we don't really want to be challenged. But the reality of it, of it is, is Jesus is way more of an alpha than he is a golden doodle. And so when we read texts like this one in, from Mark, we think, man, look at how family-friendly Jesus is. I mean, goodness gracious, he's so inclusive and so welcoming. He's saying these people are like his family. And when we read this one from Luke, we think, well, okay, obviously he doesn't mean what he's saying, guys. This is, this is hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. Have you ever heard of it? You know, certainly he's not advocating what he seems to be advocating here. And listen, while there's certainly some nuance to all this, for example, the Greek word in that Luke text uh, for hate is more akin to leave behind or sever ties. Uh, and then Jesus in other places obviously affirms the call and the commandment to love and honor our father and mother. Jesus himself even makes sure that his own mother is taken care of after he dies and leaves the earth. But the point is, is that we tend to gloss over texts like these, right? Like we tend to read them and not think too much about them. But the reality of it is, is we shouldn't. Because these are actually some of the most radical things that Jesus ever said and ever taught. And that's actually how his audience would have understood them when he first said them as well. And let me tell you why. So as, as with all things, when we study the Bible, context is incredibly important. The Bible is not written to 21st century Americans. The Bible is written in the world of the first century, in a, a first century Jewish culture. And that absolutely matters. So here's the deal. When Jesus is teaching these things, he is speaking to what we call a collectivist culture, all right? Sometimes called a strong group culture. It's not a culture that you and I live in, all right? You and I, we live in a weak group culture or rather an individualist culture. In fact, we live in the most individualist culture that has ever existed in the history of humanity. But in a strong group culture, the group takes priority over the individual. That's what it means to be in a strong group culture. Cultural anthropologist Bruce Molina puts it this way. He says, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. And that quote just made every American muscle in your body cringe, right? Like, this is not how we are groomed to think at all, except for maybe the few of you who are in here who are from China. You're probably like, yeah, absolutely, 100%. We get this. This is what we do. But for the vast majority of us, this is not how we think. This is not how we operate. But the truth is, is that basically every culture in the history of the world thinks this way, except modern Western culture. So, for example... Japan is more of a strong group culture than we are, and the Japanese word for person roughly translates as something like in between others. So the foundational way that they understand personhood is in relation to other people. In Spanish, there's that saying that you're all familiar with, mi casa es su casa, my house is your house. 
But in America, our saying is a man's home is his castle, right? This is my place and you're not welcome in it unless I let my bridge down or whatever, let my gate down and let you in. It's totally opposite, right? It's just not how we think. And the reality of it is, is that for the, for the majority of us, most of us just assume that our own autonomy, self-expression, individual dreams and happiness and needs are more important than any of the groups that we belong to. And that's because for a weak group society like our own, the individual has priority over the group. In a strong group society, it's the opposite. The group has priority over the individual. And so for us, this just sounds, it, it doesn't just sound weird to us, right? But it like sounds oppressive. Like we, it almost sounds wrong to our ears to a certain extent. I'll give you a really good example. So uh, I watched the uh, Princess Bride 2, no, excuse me, Princess Diaries 2 over vacation not too long ago. Listen, over here, just reserve your judgment. First of all, I was on vacation. Second of all, I'm an American and I do what I want, okay? That's, that's how this works. So I was watching The Princess Diaries 2, and this is the whole narrative of the movie, right? So if you're unfamiliar, basically Anne Hathaway is uh, the queen apparent Princess Mia over her land, Genovia. And there's this law written that uh, the queen has to be married, all right? That, that's in the charter of the nation. So basically the whole movie is the, the marriage gets arranged so, arranged so that she can actually be the queen. And the climactic moment of the entire film, and I use that word very loosely, uh, the climactic moment is when she refuses to go through with the wedding and gives this emblazoned and impassioned speech to Parliament, who's in attendance at the wedding, on why the laws should change and the queen should be free to marry whomever she wishes. That these laws are oppressive and what the queen really needs is her own individual freedom. And everyone just applauds and cheers and celebrates and decides right then and right there, and I don't know how they do this in that moment, but they change the laws, and then Princess Mia is able to go and be the queen that she dreams of being. It is a wonderful American tale, right? It's a wonderful American tale. But drop that into a strong group culture, and nobody is celebrating that move. All right, that movie ends very differently in a strong group society. Nobody is celebrating that. Rather, they're walking away thinking, man, Princess Mia is a pretty selfish and wicked queen who hates her people. Because in a strong group society, they would gladly, the individual would gladly put the group ahead of his or her uh, personal desires. And to be clear, I am not trying to advocate for which one is better or worse. I'm, uh, there are strong group, uh, strong group cultures go off the rails in a number of ways. That's not my aim. My point is not to critique one or the other. My point is to say that the world in which Jesus is speaking is a strong group world, a communal culture. And in that world, your primary group that you belong to was your biological family. For first century Jewish culture, it was what they call a patrilineal culture. Uh, in a patrilineal culture, your family is defined by your father's bloodline, not by your marriage. This is why there are no surnames, there are no last names in the Bible. This is why people are always referenced uh, as so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. So if we lived in biblical times, you would not call me Bailey, as most of you do. You would call me Michael, son of Thomas. Technically speaking, in these cultures, uh, your spouse was not technically a part of your family, all right? Your family was your father and your siblings. Technically speaking, your mom was not in your family. Her family was her father and her siblings. 
So marriage was usually arranged, and marriage was usually more about what was best for your group than for your own personal happiness. And it's not that romantic love wasn't a part of things. It certainly was to some extent, but it's just that it wasn't the ultimate factor in these decisions. So what all of this meant is that for these people, your closest relationships and your closest emotional bonds were more than likely with your siblings, not with your spouse. The way that you and I today would assume that your closest relationship is probably with the person you are married to, in ancient Mediterranean cultures, they would assume that your closest emotional relationships were with your brothers and sisters. So, now back to Mark 3. Look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not questioning the strong group mentality, right? Instead, he is drawing on the relationship that in their minds would have been the most intimate and closest of emotional bonds. And he says, that, that right there, that's us. Family, those are the people who do my will. Those are the people who follow me and are my disciples. That's who my family actually is. And in Luke 14, it's not just that Jesus is talking about priority, but he's talking about loyalty and identity. And he says to follow him must result in an ultimate shift of your allegiances and how you fundamentally understand who you are and where you belong. He is calling his followers to shift their group loyalty and identity away from their biological families and to him and his spiritual family. So hopefully now you can begin to see some of the enormity of what Jesus is actually teaching here. But to get a better picture, go back to that quote that I read earlier. But instead of the word strong group, insert the word church and pay attention to what happens to your soul when I read this, all right? In the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. How uncomfortable did that make you right now, right? Like some of you are like, I knew it. I knew this place was a cult. We're out. Get your bags, babe. We're gone, right? Like, I mean, it, it's just so foreign to us, right? Like we read this and we're just like, no, 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 no. Virtually none of us think this way unless we grew up somewhere outside of the West. But the real question for us is, is did the early church actually do this, right? Is this how the early church actually understood, the early, earliest followers of Jesus actually understood who they were? Did they follow this teaching and orient themselves into a new kind of family on earth? To answer that question, let's look together at Acts chapter 2. This is going to be Acts 2. We'll be in verse 41 through 47. And this is the first snapshot of the church that we get in the scriptures. So this is immediately after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the gospel is proclaimed and people are coming to faith in droves. This is immediately what happens. Check it out in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That word devoted means to continue all the time, to give unremitting care to and, and constant readiness. And that Greek word for fellowship there is the word koinonia. And it means 
togetherness, all right? It's an intermingling of lives. Fellowship is not simply the name of the hall where churches eat meals together, okay? Fellowship is a thing that defines the church. My favorite way to describe it is in that little old song that if you grew up in church, you learned like in the church nursery. You may be familiar with it. Y'all do it with me. You ever done this? This is the church. This is the steeple. I want to see some hands, people, all right? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors. And what do you see? All the people. That's exactly right. Now, pay attention. What are your fingers doing here? They are, oh, they're what? They are interdigitated, if I may, all right? That's what your fingers are doing here. They are interdigitated. This is what koinonia means. This is what fellowship in the church is. It is lives that are interdigitated together. That's what the early church is embodying. Let's keep moving. To the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They shared all things in common. Everything was we and nothing was me, right? In Acts chapter 4, it actually says that they were selling their houses in order to provide for one another. Like, how much do you have to care about someone that you would be willing to sell your house to make sure they have what they need, right? Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's a Greek word in that sentence that actually has no English equivalent. It's basically impossible for us to translate into our language. Sometimes it gets translated as to be of one mind. Sometimes it gets translated as continued to meet together or devoted with one accord. And I'm going to butcher this, but the Greek word is homothemadon. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's something, it's just... Enormous. It uh, sounds, like uh, sounds like a dinosaur, to be honest with you. Uh, it's used in Acts 19 when a riot happens, when a riot breaks out in Ephesus, and the crowd breaks into a theater and they fiercely rush together. Like when a crowd aggressively storms the court after a basketball or a football game, or like the crescendo of a symphony. They are a group that is moving towards Jesus together with fierceness. They are rushing together in one accord, bringing the kingdom kingdom of God with passion and fervency and some oomph together, helping each other grow in Christ with a fierceness. And check out verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is actually the fulfillment of what Jesus told them would happen if they loved one another as he has loved us in John 13 that their unique love for one another would make them known as Jesus' disciples and, in fact, be the very tool that God uses to grow and establish his kingdom here on earth. They are functioning like a strong group family. That is what we see taking place immediately after the gospel is preached. And throughout the New Testament, this becomes the dominant way followers of Jesus are addressed. The dominant way they are addressed is through the Greek word adelphoi, and it means brothers and sisters or brethren or essentially family. And it's used 342 times throughout the New Testament. By comparison, the word disciple is used 280. The word saints is used 61. And the word Christian is used three. And that alone should completely readjust the framework by which we understand who we are 
as believers. When the Bible calls us brothers and sisters and brethren, these are not merely cute, feel-good words to describe the church. It is the stone-cold reality of who Jesus has created us to be. So look at the person next to you this morning. Do it. If that person is a believer in Jesus, that is a brother or a sister, that is the reality of what Jesus has brought us into. So, what are the implications then for us? How does this affect us today? First, very simply, it's this. It's to understand that the call to follow Jesus is a call to community. The call to follow Jesus is a call to community. To put it another way, salvation is a community-creating event, all right? Salvation is a community-creating event. When you become a believer in Jesus, you become a part of the community of Jesus. You become a part of the family of God. The two of those things go hand-in-hand hand with one another. They cannot be separated. As one scholar puts it, Christ's blood has not only justified you, meaning made you right and innocent of sin in the eyes of God, but it has also familyfied you. It has made you family with every other person who bears the name Christ as well. Uh, in his book, Life Together, the, uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who if you don't know anything about him, he was a German pastor and theologian during World War II uh, Germany. Uh, he consciously chose to follow Jesus in a community with other believers in Nazi Germany to basically subvert the evil of the state. Ultimately, it got him killed, but he lived out the stuff that he wrote about. And in his work, Life Together, which is one of the best there is on community, this is what he says. He says that Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. The old pastor John Wesley said it this way. He said that Christianity is essentially a social religion. To turn it into a solitary religion is indeed to destroy it. Early church father Cyprian of Carthage in 250 AD put it even stronger, and I love this. He said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God as his father. Or as my uh, way a favorite scholar of mine reworded it, he said, he who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters does not have God for his father. Faith and following Jesus and belonging to the church go hand in hand, all right? There is no such thing as, a, as Lone Ranger Christianity, where it's just you and Jesus and you're good. It doesn't exist. The call to follow Jesus is always a call into the community of Jesus, into Jesus' family. The call to follow Jesus is a call to follow Jesus together. In fact, we considered even starting our entire series with this practice because all of the other covenant practices of us as a people, we do together. We abide in scripture and prayer together. We confess and repent together. We're on mission together. We're generous together. We serve together. We gather together, all right? It's fundamental to who we are. There are 59 one another commands in the scriptures. I mean, it's all over the place, time and time again. We do these things together. And so if you've come in here this morning thinking that in your discipleship to Jesus, you can just kind of loosely participate with the church and have a few Christian friends here or there. I need you to know you did not get that idea from the Bible. That idea did not come from the Bible. In fact, to think that you can, it might actually be more indicative that you have been more discipled by America than by Jesus. Secondly, 
the most compelling thing that we see about Jesus' family is who is in it. The most compelling thing we see about Jesus' family is who he invites into it. Here's what I mean. While the strong group mentality of Jesus is probably the most shocking thing to our Western ears, that was not what riled up the people of Jesus' day. What riled up Jesus' audience was who he invited to be a part of that family. Jesus defines his family not by bloodline, but by, ever, by whoever does the will of God, which he tells us elsewhere is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent, so to have faith in Jesus. And Jesus' world was far more ethnocentric than ours is. You see, Israel believed there was a family of God. They believed it was them, right? And when Jesus says these things, what's happening is he is opening up the kingdom of God to all who would repent and place their trust in him, no matter who they were, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. This is what made him so scandalous, regardless of race or background or gender or socioeconomic status, whatever else, all were welcome to be a part of his family. This is absolutely what made him scandalous, that his family was made up of a bunch of young Torah-following Jewish boys and simultaneously a bunch of tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, and even the middle-class suburbanite. All of us got included into this invitation to Jesus' family. The good news of Jesus' salvation is that it is good news for anyone and everyone who would receive it. There is no one type of person who can belong to the church. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your wealth or lack thereof. It doesn't matter your political affiliation or your gender or your past or the sin that's most tempting to you. It doesn't matter about your hobbies or your job or even your Enneagram number. God's grace and, and a place in his family are available to you. That is scandalous, but it's what makes the church so incredibly beautiful. I mean, and it's even the story of this room, right? I mean, just look around at how different all of us are who are here this morning. And Jesus' invitation to trust follow and belong to him and his people has been extended to each and every one of us. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, you can belong to him and his people. In fact, the only person that can't be a part of the community of Jesus is the person who ultimately doesn't want to. And by that, I mean the person who doesn't want to submit their life to the kingship of Jesus. That's it. That's the only person who can't belong. But third, I think the third implication of this is that for us, as Western weak group individualists that we are, Jesus' community is always going to require practice from us. That being a part and participating in Jesus' community is always going to require our practice. Here's the thing. We are 21st century Americans. We are not first century Jews. We are a weak group society. We are not a strong group society. This means that very, very little of what it means to follow Jesus together is going to come naturally to us. We just have to own that out of the gate. This is actually why community is one of our covenant practices, because as Americans, we have to practice it. As Americans, we have to practice it. The way we do this is through what we call life groups, right? They're a big deal around here. You can't be here for any amount of time without hearing us say something about life groups. Life groups are our vehicle to help each and every one of you engage in this type of family. 
Simply put, a life group is a group of people who follow Jesus together. That's what it is. It's a group of people who intentionally interdigitate their, the patterns of their daily life and discipleship to Jesus together. Life groups are the intentional structure that we've built to accomplish this. Uh, so we don't live in a weak group society. If we did, we probably wouldn't do it. I mean, excuse me, we don't live in a strong group society. If we did, we probably wouldn't do it this way, all right? But the reality of it is, is we don't live in a strong group society, so we have to build in some structure to accomplish it. So this is why we do it. And if I'm really honest with you, this is our bread and butter, okay? This is who we are. I do not think by any stretch of the imagination that we are elite at much as a church, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to assume that about us. But this is one of those things as a church that I actually think we absolutely nail, if I can be honest with you. I think we are excellent at this. So, for example, I got lunch with a new guy around our church a while ago, and this was all he could say. All he could say was, man, me and my wife, we have never been a part of a group like this where we can come and be honest about who we are and what we're going through and actually receive care and help to grow, to know that these people are in my corner, that they're not going anywhere and they're actually gonna fight for me. There's a young single woman in our church family with a history of social anxiety who said this, that, man, I never thought I'd be able to be a part of something like this, right? Like, I'd get too anxious. Like, there were times when I would drive to group and I would just stay in my car for fear of going in. I worried so much about whether or not I would be accepted or welcomed. And I can't tell you how unbelievable it is to learn that I actually have family, that my anxieties are not true. I've got a long way to go, but I know without a shadow of a doubt, I've got family here, something I never thought would be possible. Or my personal favorite, there's an older gentleman around our church who said to me, man, I have been in church all my life, and I had no idea what I was missing out on. This is family, and it is so different than what I thought it would be. And as I'm headed into retirement, I'm a different person than I ever thought I would be, and that is thanks to my group. It's beautiful. It's absolutely unbelievable. And listen, I'm not saying that our community is perfect or in any respect easy because it is not perfect and it is not easy by any shred of the imagination. There's nothing perfect or easy about it. But honestly, that's part of what makes it so good, if I can just be, be frank with you. Because we're constantly being challenged and stretched to grow and love and forgive like Jesus. That's why it's so good. But... But these things don't just happen because as a church, we've decided to structurally do life groups, okay? That's not why these things take place. Life groups are just the structure. These things happen when we as individuals practice the practice of community, right? So here's what I want to do. I wanted to give you a few things that following Jesus together is going to mean for you ways that you're going to have to intentionally practice this because we're not going to get there on accident. I want to give you a couple of these. And there are three C's because I really like alliteration and I got a little Baptist in me. Okay, so I got three C's for you on what this is going to look like for you. But here they are. The first is this, commitment. The first thing the practice of community is going to require of you is it's going to require commitment. To live in the community of Jesus, you have to commit to it. You have to. Meaningful, transformative community only happens via commitment. And commitment means a restriction of freedom for another purpose, all right? That's what commitment is. So for example, when I was single, I did whatever I wanted, right? I did absolutely whatever I wanted. Eat rushes for every meal? Sure, man, that sounds great and very delicious. 
right? Stay up to all hours of the night hanging out with my friends? Absolutely. Why not, right? Why? Because I can. And then I got married, and my life changed, right? Things changed. I didn't go out, go out all night with my friends anymore. Why? Because she became my people. Lauren became my people, and I was committed to her, and so I prioritized time with her over time out at all hours of the night with my friends because she was my people now. She was what was most important to me. And then I had kids, and my lifestyle completely changed again. Amen? Why? Because they became my people. So now I'm a person who goes to bed at 9 o'clock at night because I'm committed to taking care of these kids, and they require that I get up extra early, right? My life changed because of my commitment to them. And in the context of community, it's going to mean the same. It means that we are going to look at our group and say, I am in no matter what. These people are my priority now. Their needs are my needs. And my time and my energy and my decisions, they are the priority. The reality of it is, is if you don't surrender your autonomy, you simply cannot be a part of the community that Jesus creates. If you are unwilling to sacrifice some of your autonomy, you will never belong to the, uh, the church that Jesus is creating. And the truth is, is, this presents some problems for us, right? Like, that's not an easy pill to swallow. Because often, what do we want to do? We want to keep our options open. We want to keep them completely open. And committing to a group of people would restrict that, right? So we think, man, if I commit to this group of people, man, then my Wednesday nights are gone. And what if something better comes up? I mean, what if I'm exhausted? What if it's just been a really long day? I don't, have the ex- I don't have that excuse anymore. I've got to be a part of these people. What if my kids want to play a sport and they have practice, right? We want to keep our distance. We don't want to commit to a group of people because we want to be able to stay flexible. But in order to follow Jesus together, we're going to have to limit some of that. We tend to want to treat church like a hobby. But let me just say this. Church makes a terrible hobby. There are way more fun things you could do as hobbies than belong to a church. Church makes a terrible hobby, but it makes a great family. And for us to walk in Jesus' vision for what his church is supposed to be, we won't simply have to transfer our primary loyalty to our spiritual family from our biological family, because for most of us, our primary loyalty probably isn't to our biological family. Our challenge is going to be to shift our primary loyalty to Jesus' family from ourselves. You're going to have to create some margin in your life. Some of you may need to rethink your lifestyle and your schedule. If the only chance we have to get together is two months from now on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock, we are not going to be able to do this. If you're always busy with some function or program or activity or event, we're going to struggle to have any kind of meaningful relationship with each other. And listen, if you want to be the type of person who holds gatherings on Sundays as optional, who holds group time during the week as optional, listen, that is certainly your right. You can do that. But what I need you to understand is that that means you cannot participate in the kind of community that Jesus intends to create on earth. That is what that means. So following Jesus together is going to require commitment of you. And it's also going to require correct expectations. It's going to require correct expectations. We have a tendency to idealize human relationships, right? The easiest example of this is like with our search for a spouse. Like we have visions of the one, right, who in the words of Jerry Maguire, completes me. 
That's what we think. And then we get married and we find out that they don't, right? Like we find out that, oh, I had this all wrong. And this person isn't perfect for me like I thought, but is another real human being with real issues that conflict with my own. But often we make the exact same mistake with community. Just like we often approach marriage with the ideas of personal happiness at the, at, at the forefront. We come to community looking for the same. We come to community with ideal visions of what I want and what it will do for me. But I encourage you to listen to Bonhoeffer's words again from Life Together. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Listen, we all come to relationships with expectations and dreams of what it will be. We do. That's human. But what Bonhoeffer is saying here is that if we aren't careful, our ideas about what we think our community should be can destroy the beauty of what it actually is. What winds up happening with church, as well as with marriage and any other kind of relationship out there, is usually one of three things. Either one, we wait around on the perfect one to come along, right? Like we wait around till we find our soulmate or a unicorn because that's what that is, by the way. It's another sermon for another time, all right? Uh, but it's a myth, okay? And we, we carry that into our search for community, waiting around on the perfect community to come. But it never does because perfect communities don't exist. Or two, we shop around for the ideal, right? We shop around for it. So we bounce from one community to the next and the next, one church to the next to the next, one relationship to the next to the next in search of the ideal, the one with all the right types of people in it or the one with my preferred organizational structure with the people who like the same things as me, who eat the same things as me, who enjoy doing the same things as me, who parent the same things the same way as me or whatever else there may be, right? And then we finally, we get, or the third thing happens, we do that and we find ourselves incredibly frustrated, right? We get very, very frustrated and judgmental about the people we're actually with. And for some of us, we may not actually bounce around until we find the ideal one, but we, we might not leave physically, but we leave emotionally and we leave relationally. We pull back from doing all the things that the group does. We talk about our frustrations with the group behind their backs and so forth and so on. And all three of these scenarios wind up being incredibly destructive to our own discipleship and the family of God. And the challenge for us is going to be to get rid of our ideals and accept the very real people that God has placed us around, okay? We have to come in with the correct expectations. And the correct expectation is that this is family, that these people around me are family. There's this saying that gets passed around on social media every so often that friends are the family you pick right? Doesn't that sound so nice? I mean, it's utter bull, but it's so nice, right? Listen, friends are not the family you pick. Your friends are your friends. Family are the people you get, right? Family are the people you get. Friendship is a mixture of chemistry and affinity and life stage, life stage. but family is something that you're born into, and this is true of Jesus's family as well that the only person who picked who was in Jesus's family was Jesus himself. The rest of us, we just get to deal with the sinners made saints that Jesus picked, right? The way I like to say it is that we celebrate the mess because family is messy. 
Jesus comes and puts us in a family with real people, real people with real issues, just like us, and it's not clean at all. But that's part of the beauty of it, because it's in that space that Jesus truly does his best work. The people of God are a tool in the hand of God to grow each of us towards God. Community is where we learn to love like Jesus loves us, where we learn the self-denying, sacrificial way of love embodied in our self-denying and sacrificial Savior. It's a tool in God's hand to take us from who we are to who God created us to be. You could essentially say that biblical community is Jesus's school of love. You see, you don't grow in patience by never being around anyone that requires patience of you. You don't grow in forgiveness if you're never around somebody who required forgiveness of you. I'll say it a bit more strongly. You will never grow to be like Jesus if you're never committed to somebody that you have to die for. Because we don't become like Jesus in a vacuum. We do not become like Jesus in a vacuum. Christian community is hard because it's supposed to be hard. All the time we see people who want to bail on it because people in their group are frustrating or someone said something hurtful or they have strong differences of opinion and they believe that what these things mean is that they mean that something is inherently wrong with the group. But here's the truth. Usually there is nothing wrong with the group except the fact that they are sinners on their way to glory. That's usually all that's really going on. And what's really going on is God is trying to use the group to help you learn to love the very real people around you. And so we should expect that community is going to be demanding of you. It's going to demand some things of you. It will infringe upon your time. It will cause you to have conversations that you don't want to have. You will get your feelings hurt and you will hurt someone else's feelings. You will have to make peace and reconciliation and extend forgiveness. It will exhaust you. It will feel fruitless at times. It will challenge your comfort. It will challenge your control, and it will challenge your faith. But what we have to realize is that is exactly what God intended it to do for you. And it's all for your good. And lastly, the practice of community is going to require courage. It requires commitment, correct expectations, and courage. Because community is scary. Belonging to the family of God is scary. And I don't want to undersell this. There are plenty of reasons to never step in to this practice. The fear of the cost. What will it mean for my life if I commit to these people? The fear of the vulnerability, the fear of being known, and the fear of the hurt that could come from being that known. Because we all know that family, while it can be the source of some of life's greatest joys, family can also be the source of some of life's biggest pains, right? Even down to the very real fear of doing life completely different from the rest of our society, knowing that making this commitment is going to make means that our lives are lived completely differently from the vast majority of people around us. One where we put the needs and goals and destiny and development of our church ahead of ourselves. And so we wrestle with the fear of, man, what if, what if this means my life won't go as I dreamed it would go? And taking our step into this reality is going to require an incredible amount of courage. And I will not pretend 
that is in any way, shape, or form easy. But what I will do is I will leave you with Jesus' words to his disciples. He spoke these words after the rich young ruler found the cost of following him too steep. And Peter exclaims, Jesus, look, we have left our homes and our families and our parents and our comfort and our very lives and have followed you. And this is what Jesus says. You have stepped out into the risk, and here's how he responds. Verse 29, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. For all the fear that we take into it, Jesus promises to deliver far more than anything we would give up to be a part of it. And so for those of us who have trepidation to make this commitment in the room, I want to say to you, it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And so there's really just one application point for you today. If you are not in a group, get in one. Get in one. Even if you're not a believer, we want you to hop into one of our groups because we think that the best way for you to really see what Jesus is all about and what he does in the lives of people and how he's good and how he changes people is to be around his people. So get in a group. If you're already in a group, be fully in. Be fully in. The currents of our culture are always going to attempt to pull you away from this, but my encouragement to you is to fight against it. Maybe currently with your group, you've been one foot in and one foot out, trying to keep all of your options open, wanting to be committed and have some friends, but not really wanting to give yourself to the life of the group. Let today be the day where you stop that, where you say, I know that Jesus is for my good in this, and I'm going to give myself fully here. Maybe you've been searching for the unicorn. Maybe you've been searching for the perfect group and you've been frustrated by the group of people that you're with. My encouragement to you today would be to repent, to repent and change your mind from those ideals, to banish those wishful dreams and learn to love the very real people around you, the very real people who frustrate you and to be honest, whom you probably frustrate too. And third, maybe you've been holding out because you're afraid. Maybe just the fear of the whole thing has been too much for you. And my encouragement to you is don't let that hold you back. Jesus has something for you here. Belong to his people. The call to follow Jesus is a call to follow Jesus together. But we will not get there on accident. It takes practice. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much for your grace to us that has family fought us. It is so much fun for me um, to get to be up here and get to look out at our church family and just see all the stories of grace that you are writing. I'm so grateful to get to be of one mind with these people, of one heart with these people, of koinonia with these people. And God, I just want to ask that through the power of your spirit, you would grow us more and more in that way. God, we are Western Americans, and so none of this comes easy to us. But I pray, God, that you would help us to faithfully engage in this practice because we know it's for our good, that you have something for us here to make us more like you, to shape us into the image of Jesus and to love one another, to give all of us a space to actually belong. And we just need your spirit to work that in us. And I'm just asking that you would. 
And so whatever resistances and defenses we've been putting up, whatever cards we've been holding as excuses for why we can't be a part of a group or why we can't commit to a group, God, I pray that you would help us to see that all of that is ludicrous and that you would help us to more fully and faithfully engage. And not just for our sake, God, but for our community's sake, because this is what our community needs. Our community needs a people, our city needs a people who are following Jesus together, who help, help them see this is who Jesus is, and this is what he does in the lives of people. And this is good news, not just for us, but for you too. And I just pray, God, that you would use our love for one another to accomplish that in Lexington. We need you to do that, God. And we're asking that you would. We thank you again for your grace and your mercy to us. And it's in your end that we pray. Amen.